folks, Drive Time. This is the podcast that I, Sabi Hernandez Jr., is doing while I am driving to work or coming back from some event or something crazy like that. Uh, yeah, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things, but I just want to jump straight into it. It's been a minute since I've um, recorded one of these podcasts, and I just want to say, hey, thanks, what's up? Um, I know nobody's listening, but, you know, it's fun for me. It's therapeutic at the same time, but... One of the things that I've been doing a lot lately is actually um, interviewing and hiring people. And we talk a little bit. We talk a little bit more about business because that's what's uh, going on in my life, centered in my life. Um, so the interview process is pretty interesting. You talk uh, to you know several people, and you try to figure out from a business standpoint of whether or not the conversations that we are having, or this conversation that we would have. Um, in that conversation, would you figure to be a good fit? Now, straight up, at some point, none of your hires ever work out for forever. <laughs> you know, because when you really think about it, it's you hire them, they quit, they find a better job, you fire them, um, or they die, and you're having to hire again. So, people are, who say, "Well, I've hired staff and I'm set," well, you're never set change is going to happen and so it's always important to have your your brushed up your your simple questions the things that you really need to ask the things that you really want to harp on to try to get an understanding of who this person is so uh, my my interest in it is it's a mental game of is this person lying to me can how can i get the truth from people and i've found that it's easier to interview younger people than it is to interview Simply because older people are good at lying. They're better at lying. They've had more practice. <laughs> Younger people are... They're, they're, they haven't acquired some of those skills. You know, it's... I was talking with a young lady the other day about a position. And, you know, she flat up said that she was lazy. She likes to drink on the weekends. Oh. Okay. Now, whether you drink or not, whether you party on the weekends, whether you have a second job... I mean, some of those things are prevalent and would help you. If you told me, hey, I'm looking at this position as a second job opportunity and I'm just looking for uh, X, Y, and Z with so many hours and I'm available during this area, am, am I an asset to you? I bring this work experience, I have this kind of references, and I've done these things in the past which is comparable to what you're asking me to do now. Yeah, I would, I would definitely jump on that and say, you know, I think that this would be a good fit based off of all the factors that we just named. Now, there are certain people that have intrinsic value. They have intelligence or they go to school and they have their own idea. They pigeonhole their own availability into their life. They say, hey, I can only work eight to five. I can't work weekends. And I have a boyfriend that I like to see two or three times a week. And plus I go to school in the day. So to me, that sounds like you have no availability. Because if I do schedule you for happens, you know, for happenstance, schedule on a Friday, Friday night, or an afternoon, or a weekend, or something, and you call in, I'm not surprised because you told me up front that that was something you really were not comfortable with doing. Uh, adversely, if I schedule you during those eight to five hours, or you know, the small availability time, you're happy, but I get no value from that. I get no um, benefit from that. So I, I think it's interesting. I've been learning a little bit about some of the things that uh, 
that I've noticed, like with older individuals, they, they very much know what they want and they know how to spin it or sell it in a way that makes it sound more conducive to me. So they know I'm looking for somebody with full open availability. But if they have restrictions, they put it in the sense of, well, listen, everything but this thing. I can, be, I can come and work any time but this time because I'm doing X, Y, Z, yoga, or if I run a, a side business, or I have an extra class, or whatever it is, right? You, you have those things worked in. I think that's pretty interesting. Um, me, personally, I kind of like the idea of the interpersonal game between me trying to figure out whether or not you're a good fit, and then certain people consciously really put effort into lying or being deceitful. And I, I think it's interesting. It's like a, a hard nut to crack in some ways because once you finally open them up and tell them, or get them talking, open them up in the sense of conversation, get them talking about uh, what they want to do or things that they enjoy, things that they like, you kind of take the tension out of them. And that's really when you can see the personality. You can see them smile. You can see what, how how uh, engaging they are, and that's a good um, that's a good reflection on how they'll be um, working with you. So I, um, I I had a couple of other things uh, about interviewing. I think that sums it up pretty nicely. Um, I, I I tend to enjoy the people that I'm talking with, enjoying with. And, you know, we've made some good hires. We've got some good quality people. By the way. You really should judge um, interview people like people who are interviewing with you because yes, appearance is a, a big thing, and yes, I do want uh, good-looking candidates. But at the same time, I want people that are going to be real. And uh, so many times I bump into liars, and when I mean I mean just bold-faced liars in the sense that you know they say, well, when you ask them about their history, they'll go in detail about how they were overlooked for a promotion, they felt slighted and how the management or people in charge were against them. Now, I'm not saying they were against them or not against them. I don't know them. But just by the story that you know, they're presenting me, it seems like I would be more inclined to believe that a little bit of hope is happening. And because of that, I always feel I always feel like it's um, it's one of those things that I can uh, some situations of myself where I go back and say, yeah, it was me. 
But at the same time, I've had situations where I was like, that was the people. That was the individual organization. That was the, was the person. And, you know, whether it be because I was not being, you know, I didn't see a promotion or I wasn't uh, being looked at for uh, higher opportunities after obtaining a degree or whatever it was, you know, I always had legitimate reasons for me moving. But one thing that I've noticed is that people don't actually have backup plans or anything. They just, they just kind of willy-nilly, <laughs> they kind of willy-nilly and, um, I'm going to quit. I'm going to be unemployed for three months and then I hope I get this job. Oh. And they show up with like gold chains and flossing rings and it's like, you don't look professional. <laughs> anyway, I mean, I know that this is just kind of like a sidebar, but I'll move on to the next topic. So we've had a lot of rain here recently in my area and there was like a uh, tropical depression that moved through, left a lot of rain across the Gulf Coast region here in Texas. Eh, you know, meh. <laughs> it's kind of difficult sometimes to drive uh, to these different places with the road conditions being wet and everything, but yeah, I'm not too, I'm not too upset about, about it. I kind of, kind of enjoy uh, the weather and seeing it. I've been on a running schedule. Um, well, my next race that I'd like to run would be in my hometown of El Campo. Um, it's going to be in like October 5th, but I may have, I may be working to where I can't, I won't have that, you know, available. Um, so there's that. And then, um, the week, a couple weeks after that, I'm going to go to Huntsville and I'm going to race in Huntsville. And that's what I'm excited for. That's what I'm looking uh, into. And that's really what I'm, I'm excited about is Huntsville's race. I am probably going to run my slowest time ever, uh, but that's okay. I am comfortable with that, that reality um, because they're hills and, you know, I just, I, I mean, I already know Huntsville is no joke. It really is no joke. Huh. Uh, but anyway, I, I miss the campus. I miss, I miss being there. And the fact that I wake up so early um, kind of helps me. That race is like it's 8:30 or 7:30 or something like that. So, I mean, it's relatively early for, for the race. Um, I know I've been running to acclimate myself to that time, like 8:30, but I mean, 7:30 is just as early. But I guess they do that because Sunday morning in Huntsville is pretty pretty dead, and they want to try to get the race over with before the city or the, the town wakes up and people start running you over while they're driving around the campus. Of course, it's campus, you know. It's the same as the State University campus. And, uh, you know, the, again, that's one of the things that you can try to be away from. So, homecoming was, I think, the end of the day before in Huntsville. That's going to be the day before uh, Battle of the Piney Woods, I believe. Um, be maybe a week later, a couple weeks later. So. Um... I really don't have much else to say. I should have written down some topics um, and, and just gone in depth on certain things. But every time I start thinking about it, I never write them down so I can talk about them, explain it with fire and passion. You know, I just kind of, uh, I just kind of remember what's on my mind right now. And 
usually it doesn't make for a good taping. I'm gonna be honest with you, as a person who's been talking, and then I'm pretty sure as a person who's probably still not listening or maybe listening, it's interesting. I would I would probably turn this thing off right now. Anyway, one thing I, I noticed the other day was when um, I was on Facebook. Of course, everybody has a Facebook. Let's just be 100% real. Everybody has a Facebook, and I was looking through mine, and there's old people that I found from high school, and people that, uh, you know, I guess secretly tried to add me, or whatever it is. If I don't know you, I'm not going to add you. I mean, that's, let's just, let's just keep it 100%. Uh, if I don't know you, like, in real life, I've never met you, or I don't know of you, like, specifically don't know of you. Then chances are I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna add you into my Facebook. There's some family members, cousins and stuff that I haven't added on Facebook simply because political beliefs um, are one of the biggest things that separate people on Facebook. You know, they start fights, people have different opinions. You know, when I was a younger person and I had social media, I had everybody I've ever known on my social media. I probably had about five, seven hundred people. Somewhere in there. Now I've got a little under 200. Uh, I think it's like 180 or 190. And I rarely let people, you know, in or on because it is very, it's very um, not clicky. It's always good to have people, you know, that you that you see and understand. And you know, yeah, I have different people in my groups. Um, ones for you know, anime or ones for uh, football or, you know I've got one that are my family actually my brothers and sisters and actually they're the ones that disagree with me the most um, which is interesting because they're the people that I love the most you know the closest people that I'm, I'm to is my family like my brothers and sisters and um, <laughs> they absolutely hate some of the stuff I post on Facebook now don't get me wrong don't get it twisted I'm not uh, a huge Barack Obama supporter or a huge President Trump supporter. Um, <laughs> I will admit, when I was young, I voted for Barack Obama. When I was, it was the first time I ever voted. I was 20 years old, I believe, um, and I could vote, and I did vote. Uh, he was running against uh, let's see, Barack Obama. His first term, he was. Moneybags, Mitt Romney was the second term, I guess. So the first term was Mitt. I think it was Mitt. Yeah. It wasn't a Bush. That's Jib. Uh, recent Torm was in there. Mitt Romney was in there. Uh, anyway. So I voted for uh, Barack Obama the first term. Second term, I did not. <laughs> Second term, I did not vote for Barack Obama. It's amazing how four years makes a huge difference with with what you believe. And by you living life and being out, you know, you have kids with medical issues and then some uh, government-mandated program kicks in and you actually get really screwed over. Um that's a reality, and that's my reality when it comes to what is now referred to as Obamacare or the Affordable Health Care Act. Now, was Barack Obama a horrible president? Probably. Uh, at the time, did it seem so? Not to me. 
Um, in retrospect, now looking at some of the policies and how it affects my life personally, would you have voted differently? Maybe. You know, I, t I tend to stand strong on my beliefs when I have them. So at that time, I believed he was the better choice for president, and I, I voted for him. Now, I'll never deny that. Um, but now as an older man who has paid taxes, who is, uh, <laughs> is a person with a family who wants a 401k, who wants to build wealth and, and own my own property, I slid very out of the Democratic uh, Party circle, and I moved very hard to the um, libertarian roots. Um, yeah, I thought y'all thought I was gonna say Republicans. Uh, yeah, the Republicans, I probably see more to eye with now, but there are some things that I just don't like. Um, and again, I'm not gonna sit here and start talking crazy politics, but I, I am pretty much a libertarian at this point. I believe in uh, very base libertarian principles. Um, you know, taxation without rep taxation is theft essentially, but. You know, I, I don't think you should tax the, the hell out of everything. I think that there should be more freedoms allowed to the individual and to the states rather than the federal government being able to mandate things like the Affordable Health Care Act. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of things there that I see, and there's a lot of things there that I would change. Um, I'm not crazy libertarian. Uh, there are some things that I still have some, some principles in, um, you know, that maybe lean left or lean right. Um, you know, I'm for gay marriage. I don't really care. I know it's weird because everybody thinks that I'm like some hardcore Republican. There's so many people that I've met that are legit cool people that I would, you know, kick it with and, and be cool with and actually have been cool with for several years that are gay. And it does not affect the way I <clears throat> talk to them. doesn't affect the way that I think of them. They're no lesser to me than anything. Now, I understand that I have a suspicion that one of my cousins are gay, and I told my parents about it, and they were a little a little shaky, they were kind of um, taken aback. I mean, the looks that my parents gave me were one of disgust, and just kind of, just kind of like, uh-huh, like, oh, that's interesting, really? But I, I don't think it comes from a place of hate. I don't think it comes from a place of like honest disgust. I think it was just surprising that they felt that I, yeah, you know, I think so and so is maybe gay. They're like, oh, well, okay. Like, what is that going to do for his kids? What is that going to do? Or not his kids, but what is that going to do for my cousin's uh, parents? And you know, and it's interesting because growing up, I grew up in uh, a Hispanic household, but. Um, it was Americanized, which I'm very proud of and I'm very happy of. Um, when my dad and me would go watch football on Sundays, it's some of the oldest memories I have of me going to my cousin's house. And when we go to my cousin's house, all the other cousins would show up and they're all guys, right? So it's guy talk and it's the first representation that I've had of, um, kind of, kind of like a group of guys being together uh, kind of with the way a church small group works, you know, these guys get together, they talk, you know, and it's small talk, we're watching the game, you know, we comment on the, on the football game, and it, that's the culture that was there, and one of the culture was, you know, not necessarily gay bashing, but, you know, there was an outright disdain or a dislike of uh, homosexuals, and 
I see it prevalent in the Hispanic culture. It's not just my family. And again, these individuals probably have changed because they were younger parents. They were, you know, 32, 35, you know, they, they were younger adults at the time. Now that they're 50 or 60, you know, well, now that they're moving in lower, you know, sliding in age, um, it's easier for them to sit here and say, yeah, I was wrong on that. Because they've changed, just like I have. I was, you know, 14. So I remember having that point of view or seeing that. And one of their children might be gay. Now, I'm not saying he is. I'm just saying. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect me at all. I love the, I love the dude. I've always loved the dude since we were young, since we were kids. I mean, that's my cousin. He's my family. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, this insert slur, you know. And by the way. Like George Carlin says, words are just words. Slurs, it's it's how you take them. It's the context. If you call somebody a fag, I, you know, hey, look at that fag, or hey, let me get that fag. In the UK, a fag, you know, per se, is a cigarette. You know, it is a smoking cigarette. Um, in America, it means homosexual, and it's a slur for homosexuality or for a homosexual. So. It, Again, it, it, it moves through different forms of speech and lingo. And George Carlin, it's it's not the word, it's how you use it, right? It's it's if you're using it derogatorily, Jughead could be something that is super derogatory. Or Jughead could be the uh, person who is a comic book character from Archie, right? It's a nickname. It's a moniker. It's it's a title in some instance. You know, it's it's not something that's derogatory. It's always about the context of the words. It's not how you it's how you use it. It's the context. So, um, I fully believe in that. I, I really do. It's something that I, um, you know, I use words, and maybe I I flirt with the idea of using it using a quote unquote negative word or bad word. There is no bad words, by the way. It's bullshit. But. Um, it's, you know, use them in the right context or a happy context, like gay. Oh, yeah, he was very gay today. It's not like he was gay today. He was very gay. Gay, terminology, and of course, dictionarily wise, I think now it's the second or third meaning, but in the 1950s and before, before the term became popularized, it meant happy. It meant joyous. It meant um, exuberant, right? Those were the terminologies that were used at the time. Yes, I understand that social culture and different things have bastardized these words and have turned them into something and put specific meaning behind them. But just because they've done that doesn't mean that I need to respect it or um, or acknowledge it. I mean, just because a, a group of individuals have said that now the sky is green doesn't mean the sky is green. And just because you tell me that word is what you think it means doesn't mean that's the way I'm using it and that's the context in which I'll, I'll, I'll put my characterization of words into. Um, again, I do understand that there's a PR, a PC PR culture that's going to hype or dispel things that you say. 100% agree with that. In modern America, you have to understand that that's how it is, right? Doesn't mean it's right, or you know, doesn't mean it's right, obviously. But you have to understand that that's something that's going to happen. So, regardless of my beliefs of context, somebody can just say, "Nope, that's what it means." And there's enough people in America that don't do enough thinking or critical thinking to sit here and say, "Yeah, okay, he meant it like this, and he said it like that." 
jokes. Um, you know, there's so many people outraged about Dave Chappelle's comedy and, and what he's been saying and how he's been saying it. And, uh, you know, Bill Burr, Dave Chappelle, I mean, all these different comics that are actually comics. And when I'm talking about Amy Schumer, um, we're talking about actual comics that are funny, that write their own jokes, that have their own material, that talk in their own voice and tone, and they mean things in their own ways. But most of those jokes are ambiguous, but it's it's defined and put under the context of this is a joke. This is the intent to make you laugh through either thoughtful comedy, through quick wit, through terminology, through a mixture of different associations. So, you know, some jokes, actually, the whole premise of those jokes are because they're there to do a bait and switch, essentially a word bait and switch. They say a word, it actually means something different. The the example right now is in Dave Chappelle's new comedy, Juicy Smoulet, right? Juicy. Juicy Smoulet. He talks about it, and everybody's looking around like, what is this guy talking about? He goes, oh, you don't know? He's purposely um, saying Jesse Smollett name incorrectly but it's very punctual he's trying to pronounce it the exact way that it's spelled um calling him a frenchman and stuff right he's, t- he's telling you the joke is this guy's i mean first there's many macro jokes in it but you know the first one is that you think it's said this way he's selling it, trying to say it, pronounce it the right way that it's spelled so you're already confused like who, who is he talking about what is he talking about and and then he goes into what the allegations were with the facts and it's a political thing, but it's, it's interesting because he takes that experience and he just goes, I don't, I don't, I don't believe it. You know, I don't, I don't, his whole premise is the fact that he's a doubter or he's dubious or he knows the truth and he don't want to say nothing because he understands overall the narrative is one way, but he's trying to not flip the switch, the script, but he's trying to present it in a different way that makes it more comical. Again, it's comedy. It's meant to make you laugh. It's meant to have you in thought and, you know, have a certain narrative in your head or a certain idea or conscript and then say, hey, it's not like this. And that's why it's funny because the differences are there and it's hilarious. And, you know, Dave Chappelle is really good at this. And, you know, Bill Burr, he's very blunt with his comedy. You know, people call him offensive, but it's really not offensive when your point of view and your way of thinking is of a comic. It's, I. how can I tell this joke? How can I make this funny? What can I do? And then the idea that he stays, but he stays in character for a minute, and then when he feels the crowd actually having that internal dialogue and it's going negative, he'll break that fourth wall and say, hey, they're only jokes. You know, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm telling jokes here, you know? And it breaks the people back out of, yeah, what he said was crazy, what he said was wrong, or, you know, he, oh man, that, that messes with my schema of how I think of it. But it's super funny because the context is there. And the context is what you understand more than what the individual words are. So, um, I, I mean, I hate to go on a tangent like that, but it really is words are wind. It's all about the context and the meaning. So, you know, it's comedians do that all the time. And, you know, it, it's just it's just amazing. Um, and of course there's bad comedians out there that try to do it and they do it horribly and they don't have the right context in there. So it actually does get offensive or offended and they actually mean something. And then they try to backtrack and say it was something else. And you know, whatever that is, is something completely different. And, but it happens. I mean, just like anything, it happens. Um, I, I, I'm just, you know, like I said, at some point, 
Um, it'd be interesting to see if enough people kind of wake up to media bias and different kinds of biases that you buy into. So, for instance, if I say, you know, oh, so we're talking about bad words and dirty words and stuff like that. Um, and there's a bias there too. You know, whatever it be. George, again, going back to George Carlin, he said there's seven words you can't say on television because by some power that be, they demanded and they said that these are the words that should not be used. It's a funny joke, but it's so true. It's it's based in a reality of there is censorship in America and there's this censorship in uh, television product, uh, all, you know, making it family friendly, having specialized programs for certain amounts of time and I mean that's just how that's just how it runs now, and you know he called it in the seventies, and now it's more more apt than not with Disney. Uh, but um, yeah, I just I, I've always felt like the taboo that's there uh, with Hispanic cultures and and taking on homosexuality it does not matter. So back to initially the Facebook comments is what I was talking about before I started getting these two tangents on homosexuality, Hispanic culture, and, uh, just context of meaning, but Facebook. So I'm on Facebook and I am trying to decipher who I want, who I don't want. So when you get on Facebook, it's, it's pretty much like a public forum, but it's your private forum that you've opened to publicly. So for instance, when you, uh, if you have a thought and you have a thought like, a an idea, not a thought like a skank. Um, <laughs> if you have an idea in your head and you want to put it down, you type it up and you post it. Now, if you have zero friends, nobody sees it and it is private still. If you have one friend, then that means they can share it, screenshot it, and now your ideas are no longer your public, your private ideas. They are more public ideas. So, you know, there's that. And I um, personally think that that's kind of interesting. But at the same time, it, it, it's it's still private because, you know, it is your own personal page that you're posting your ideas or, or your, your, your feelings out into the world. Be that wrong or right, you can say things like uh, Zikail, um, you know, on Facebook. Well, you could. You used to. But when they go into public groups and stuff like that, they do, you know, zucks you. But um, <laughs> it's just... The connotation of that is very negative, very dark, and it highlights a time of oppression, racism, different things like that, right? Now it's starting to sound like the left. Oppression and racism. Oh, racism and oppression. Um, but it was actually a period of oppression and racism. I don't know how she would call a xenophobic dictator who specifically allocates the public with the force of the government, right, into concentration camps and murders, mass murders, six million of one ethnic uh, background. An ethnic cleansing is what they called it, and that is genocide. So that is racism, extreme racism. That's I'm gonna kill you because you were born Jewish. Racism, and then you know the xenophobia is that you're you're scared or you want to separate certain races based off of certain characteristics and traits. Um, you know. And the oppression of Jewish people was a thing. So you can't sit here and say, oh, well, we've never been oppressed and we've never. Yeah, that's been there. It has been there. Now, 2019 is different from, you know, you know, 1877. Uh, you know, 
if you can't admit that, you know, it's interesting to me because there's two different issues that, that almost coincides with each other because they use specific times of, of past events. So, for instance, if you're an African, again, I'm not going to try to explain the African-American experience because apparently or allegedly there's an experience that nobody else has and only people of color are the ones suffering through it. When, you know, you have people who are brown right now being deported just because they're brown, you've got people who are getting jammed up with police and different efforts because they're brown, but, you know, the oppression is solely with the African-American community. So let's just be clear on that. It's, it's not. Um, I think that there are certain things everywhere that everybody has to go through. Well, the white man, I don't know who that is anymore, right? Because I'm a Hispanic person. I married a white girl and our kids are mixed, okay? They have the last name Hernandez, but they look white as a ghost, okay? So I, I can't tell you exactly where, who is white and who is, you know, black and who is mixed. It, 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 we are becoming literally a melting pot with uh, different mixed races, that it really isn't going to matter very much in the next couple of years, you know, because it's not. I mean, I, I've got so many friends that are mixed races. It's not even funny. If anything, I have more friends and I've known more people that are mixed races than not of just pure African-Americans or just pure blacks or just pure Hispanics. They're out there, trust me, and they're there in, in many quantities, but... Within the next four generations, I mean, how many of those siblings and how many of those offsprings are going to be uh, mixed? Well, there's a good percentage. There's a good population. So the idea that it's just one single oppression, it, that narrative will go away at some point because they, everybody's going to be mixed in with each other. That it's, I'm one-fifth black, so I'm oppressed and I'm, you know, it's an oppression Olympics. But um, back to my initial point, this oppression in America. In 1776, or, you know, back when the, the founding fathers, let's put it a hundred years into the future, 1876, right? At that time, it was the Industrial Revolution, or the start of it, and, and you had come out of the Civil War at this point, and Reconstruction was going on. Probably James Buchanan or somebody was president during this time, or somewhere around it, Zachary Taylor, but... Um, you had presidents that were slowly moving more progressive. And that was good for the time because, again, the South, a hundred years ago, was deeply racist. They did not feel that African Americans were people. There's something called the three-fifths compromise, where three out of every five black people counted, every black person counted as three-fifths of a person, essentially. That is the fucking most racist shit I've ever heard of. And, you know, it, it is crazy. One individual person is worth two-thirds of a real, a real, quote-unquote, and by when I mean real, I mean a property owner, which was traditionally a white person. So making all the distinctions, because not every white person was landovers, some of them people were indentured slaves too. So don't be like, oh yeah, all the white people ruled us. No, some of them were working the fields and some of them were indentured servants. They were so poor that they had to, to work you know, farms and, and work, uh, coal mines and they have to, you know, do dangerous jobs, especially in California where it was, you know, coal mining and different things. And, you know, they worked railroads where, you know, they worked all kinds of different high, high dangerous jobs for things like that. And it was interesting to me that, you know, those things aren't really talked about. They go straight through the black experience or the black narrative 
and they pigeonhole these other experiences and they lessen those. Just how, a quote-unquote, the African-American population was lessened. So, I mean, there are give and takes. Now, the biggest point that I want to make before we you know, shut down and leave is the idea that in 1876 there was racism. Yes, 100%. I, I, there's no way of arguing it because of the economic social structures. I, if you're a fool that says racism didn't happen, then you're crazy. At the same time, it's 2019. And African Americans, although maybe not advantaged, they are not disadvantaged. Nobody is telling them that they're three-fifths of a person. Nobody is telling them that they are um, less than anybody else. Now, are there social structures in place that maybe doesn't don't put them ahead maybe that's a very that's a very strong possibility but at the same time the dysfunction of the family the nucleus of the family from like a 1950s where Martin Luther King was promoting this family centric nuclear family to the way it is now where you see broken homes and broken families. And this doesn't, doesn't go just for the black experience. This is for everybody. This is any, ethni any ethnicity. If you see a broken home, there are statistically more problems with that when it comes to income, when it comes to education, when it comes to child development. The ratios for um, graduations are lower when it comes to high school and college graduations, people coming from broken homes or, um, you know, split homes or blended homes, whatever demo, you know, whatever way you want to say it, you know, people who have been either married or divorced or partners who have been in and out of children's lives. That is the, that is the structure. That is the thing that is actually tanking, uh, those individuals. Now those individuals maybe happen to be black. I don't know. I've seen it a lot in my Hispanic communities. Um, but then again, traditionally Hispanics are Catholic and they promote marriage right after all this other BS. So you're stuck in a, a lifeless marriage for 35 years or whatever, but that's just because the Catholic church told you to. So that's another, it's a completely different issue, but that's why in the Hispanic communities, it's a different dynamic, but it all comes down, down to the same thing. Um, family broken now in America, the family dynamic is broken. It's not a nucleus family. And that's why those individuals are not necessarily succeeding at higher rates. Doesn't mean that it's because they're black. It literally means because there are other things at play that don't necessarily give them any advantage. So when all that comes, you know, up, that was not the social structure in 17, 1876. The social structure was racism. It was slavery. It was coming out of Jim Crow. I mean, there's Jim Crow laws everywhere. There was, there were certain things that they were getting away from at that point, breaking away. So everything was new. Everything was fresh. And there was a lot of tension based off of racial structures. Now, the last thing that I want to mention is... Um, you compare that they're not the same experiences and somebody can, and you can admit over time, the experiences have vastly changed, whether it be for the good or for the bad. But again, that's going to be your individual idea. But I can tell you right now that as a Hispanic growing up in 2088 or 1988 and 2018, 2019, I have it immensely better than my forebearers in 1878. I don't think anybody can argue that, Right. The only time people argue, oh, well, racism was alive back then and it's still alive now. Okay, well, I would say, hey, let's take the gun debate because it's the same thing. You want me to acknowledge that something happened a long time ago and then tell me that it's never changed over time. 
And that is pretty much the race, you know, hey, America's racist, right? That's that's the debate that you want me to have, and that's the acknowledgement you want me to have. That something that happened 200 years ago, 100 years ago, is still in place, and it's still, you know, the law of the land, and everything's still, you know, hunky-dory as usual. But you won't admit that guns, right, muskets and all the other stuff from back in the day, you know, that's the only text that they keep sound in the, in the, in the Second Amendment is, is that. They don't ever mix it. They don't ever change it. So, you know, the idea is, you know, we're going to change our view on racism, but we're really not. We're going to want to keep that thing going. But at the same time, it's like a, a document that was written, you know, 200 years ago that's preserved our nation. At the same time, it's like, hey, um, that doesn't matter. We need to change that. We need, we need, you know, we need to have that. We need to change that. So it's, it's interesting because it's not really, it's not really, it doesn't make any sense. You, you, you say that something hasn't changed over 200 years in the form of racism, but yet you won't admit that things have changed with the second amendment, right? Second amendment, uh, whatever way you want to see it probably needs to be updated, but who's going to write that? I think you should keep it as is. You have the right to bear arms and, and not infringe and not infringe against a tyrannical government. You have the right to bear arms to protect yourself from the government. That's essentially it. That's why the Second Amendment is there to and not have you or a tyrannical government infringe upon you, and in some ways, kind of turn America and what's going. So, interesting things. Appreciate the talk today. So it is uh, drive time, like I said. Today's drive time. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you down the road. Appreciate you listening. Bye.